Hi, friends. You're listening to the Lessons from Dead Guys podcast, a work of exile liturgy in collaboration with TheologyCorner.net. Last week, we wrapped up our Epiphany mini-series and are jumping headfirst into the Lenten season with a special episode for Ash Wednesday. I really can't... Um just tell you how stoked I am about uh, the stuff I have planned for the Lenten season and uh, the different episodes and the resources we have coming out in the next month or so for you to be able to use to help you during the season and um, grow and hopefully be able to observe Lent in a new, fresh way. That said, uh, though I usually reserve uh, ordinary time in the church year as our designated time in the podcast and, and for the show uh, for when I have guests on and I conduct interviews, but today I've made an exception and we have, we're being joined by professor and author Matthew Rothis Mosier, who is a professor of theology at Loyola University in Maryland. Matthew is a self-described hillbilly Dante, Dantean with a touch of Augustine Balthazar and Balthazar for good measure. And I'm thankful to be joined by Matthew as we kick off this Lenten pilgrimage, talking about Dante and the Divine Comedy and how that all works together in uh, connection with Ash Wednesday and the Lenten season. Matthew, before we jump into this thing, could you just take a minute to introduce yourself for our listeners and let us know more about you and your work? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. It's a real honor. Um, Yeah, so as Ryan said, I am uh, a visiting assistant professor of theology at Loyola University in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I my teaching responsibilities here are are pretty excessive. I have to teach across a a number of different subdisciplines, but my main course that I teach is a course called the Christian Imagination. And in that course, uh, I, I invite my students to the joy of spending about seven weeks reading Dante's comedy. And then we follow that up and we put that, that poem in conversation with the, the philosophy of Nietzsche and the graphic novel Watchmen. And then we uh, try to, to reconcile the two, the, the two very different kind of theologies and philosophies at work uh, with Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life. And that's kind of my my bread and butter professionally. That's the course that I teach the most. And Dante has been become uh, a, a larger and larger cornerstone of what I what I do, and uh, and how I think about theology and philosophy and spirituality as well. That's awesome. I <laughs> that's really cool. I don't I don't know of any courses um, I've ever heard of using the Watchmen with Dante before. So that's pretty cool. I've, though I've not read Dante, um, I have read the Watchmen. Um, so it is definitely one of my favorite graphic novels. So that's pretty cool. And I haven't seen the Tr- Tree of Life yet, so I'm going to have to check that one out too. I think you're the second person I've had on the show that has brought that up in an episode. The other one being, I think, the other person being Brian Zond. So yeah. when you're in a good contemplative, quiet mood, then then watch Tree of Life. You gotcha. can't watch it in any other mood, though. <laughs> All right. Could you maybe just give us some background on Dante? My listeners are basically all over the place when it comes to theology theology and uh, church tradition. So I'm sure some of them are familiar with Dante's life and his work, but I imagine quite a few of those uh, who, who listen to the show are like me and are basically ignorant of Dante and his work, other than maybe knowing of the Divine Comedy through pop culture or just hearing about it. Um, so if you could, could you just tell us about Dante for, for a second before we jump in? Yeah, I would be happy to. Um, it's really appropriate to spend a, a couple of minutes just to talk about Dante the man, um, because in in a real sense, he is the main subject of the Divine Comedy. Uh, he he was a poet. He was not a professional theologian. He was not a uh, an ecclesiastic. He was a poet. 
born in 1265 in Florence, Italy. Um, and he made his name as a young man as the writer of love poetry. Uh, he published his first collection of love poetry, a book called The Vita Nuova, around the time that he is 30 years old. And this is when he kind of moves into the public spotlight. Around the time that he's he's 30, he um, joins a, a guild of physicians and apothecaries, which you wouldn't really expect a poet to be part of that guild. But right. uh, in, in happier days, uh, the poet was understood to be a kind of physician, I suppose. Uh, and this is where Dante kind of moves into a kind of political uh, aspect of his of his life. He moves from being a poet to taking on more of a, a, a political role. And he actually ascends as high as being one of the city of Florence's six priors. But Florentine politics makes uh, American politics um, uh, look a little tame, uh, at least in, in Dante's day. Uh, there are all kinds of, of infighting and, and civil wars between various factions. And eventually Dante ends up on on the uh, he draws the the small stick, and uh, he is actually exiled from the city of Florence in 1302 through the machinations of uh, some Florentines, through uh, some perhaps conspiratorial um, uh, machinations of the Pope, Pope Boniface VIII. And Dante is exiled from his city. Um, his family does not follow him into exile, and he never returns home to his city in his hometown of Florence. And he spends the, the rest of his days wandering around and around Italy until he dies in uh, 1321. And his, his bones are still in Ravenna, Italy. Um, and uh, Florence has tried to get Dante's bones back uh, from Ravenna, but Ravenna has decided, no, we're, we're going to hold on to them. We're going to hold on to them. Uh, but it's in his exile that Dante writes um, most of the works that he's known for, and especially the uh, the comedy uh, that we're talking about today. Right. That's when I, I had no idea, actually, that Dante had been exiled. Um, like I said, my, my knowledge of Dante is very limited. I mean, I knew who he was. I knew about some of his works. Um, but other than that, I didn't really know anything else about his life. So when I, when, you know, for you guys listening, when Matthew, we first started talking about doing this interview, I asked him, I was like, you know, I, I have no real knowledge of Dante. Could you send me some resources? So he sent me a, a chapter of a book that is, I went ahead and bought and it's just fantastic so far. But uh, he also sent me like hours of lectures on Dante, which was like Christmas. <laughs> like I've spent the last week just listening to, to as much of it as I could. So it was just awesome to hear all these different lectures. Um, but the thing that stuck out to me to the most was this that I had no idea that Dante was ever exiled and um, lessons from dead guys falls under a larger project called exile liturgy. And it's because this theme of exile and pilgrimage is something that has been so prominent in my life. And so anytime I'm dealing with anyone that's been exiled, I'm immediately uh, more intrigued probably than I will be with someone else. So that was, that was really interesting uh, for me to um, see that and see that, you know, the comedy was the, it was birthed out of that exile. Yeah, and in fact, the Dante's exile is a kind of like it's it's a kind of subplot of Dante's comedy. Um, Dante himself is exiled in 1302, but when he goes to write the poem, he decides to set it 
two years earlier in the year 1300, which is when he's actually elected to be a prior of the city of Florence. And it's in the year 1300 that we meet Dante, the character of the poem, in a dark wood. He is he is lost. He is cut off from his sources of joy, his sources of happiness. And so, in, in a sense, he's in a spiritual exile before he is even exiled politically and physically from the city of Florence. And the whole journey of the comedy is this pilgrimage, this movement out of exile um, towards, towards his homeland in the beatific vision. And I think he situates it the drama of this, the the character's pilgrimage, he situates it earlier than his own, because I think there is in Dante a kind of missional aspect to why he's writing the poem. He There's a very famous uh, uh, painting of Dante where he is holding a copy of his Divine Comedy up to the city of Florence, and he's offering it to them. And his hand is pointing behind him where you see uh, uh, pictures of his hell and of his purgatory and of his paradise. And it's almost as if he is warning Florence, look, Florence, you've cut me off. You've exiled me. But I'm coming back to you, not in vengeance, not to conquer, but to warn you that you have inferno in your soul. Uh, you have purgatory in your soul. May you also have paradise in your soul. And so the character's exile and pilgrimage kind of prepares him for his response to his actual exile and, and the, the kind of emotional pilgrimage that he has to take. Right. And I think what um, in that the book or the chapter you sent me, you know, Hawkins talks about how this this rise to power, political power, political seating in Florence. It was like, he was like the first person in his family to have come that far, but it was really, you know, the beginning of his demise. Yeah, I guess to me, just as someone who's not very familiar, it it seems to make sense as why he would put the beginning of this, you know, this pilgrimage into uh, hell and purgatory, all that starting then is because I guess reflecting back, he he sees it at that point is that's when the exile really began. That's when things started, I guess, moving in that direction. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, one thing, like, I, I guess for me, just because Lent in in my mind is this exile. It's this willing exile. You know, we go, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. The Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years. And so we enter into this wilderness that is Lent, this, this self-imposed exile to some extent. And um, so that, that theme has always been very present with me uh, coming into, since I've been, um, I guess, observing Lent in the church calendar, which has not been for the majority of my Christian life. Uh, but for the several last several years at least, and so to see the, that theme run through um, Dante's life and him that be the the birthplace for this comedy, which is about this pilgrimage, about this exile, um, was just super intriguing to me. And so um, this is an Ash Wednesday episode, and so again, I'm I'm as someone who's so <laughs> ignorant of, of Dante's work. So how could we, um, I guess, approach this? this divine comedy, this work of Dante and Dante's life as a resource for us who are wanting to observe Lent in a new kind of fresh way or to a depth that we might have not experienced it before? Yeah, I think that's that's an important question. And and I I should note that um, that the way that I'm reading the divine comedy is as 
giving us something that is uh, useful for the Christian life and the Christian journey. Uh, this is not an uncontroversial opinion. Um, when when you have two readers of Dante, you have three different interpretations. Um, so so there are ways of reading the Divine Comedy uh, that are are would be decidedly different from from the way that I read it and the way that I'm going to suggest um, suggest that we read it. So just to kind of own that up front, right. But I, I think in a way, the entire Divine Comedy, maybe I should say something just uh, uh, about the, the plot and the structure real quick, which will allow me to yeah, better sure. answer your, your question. So it's divided into three um, uh, three major poems or cantica. You have the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the, and the Paradiso. And the central character here is Dante himself. Uh, and so we have to distinguish between Dante, the, the character, the pilgrim, and Dante, the author, the poet. And the journey of the pilgrim, I think it, it's fair to say the journey of the pilgrim is to become the poet. He undergoes this journey through hell and purgatory and paradise in order to become the man who can write the poem. And and in a letter, Dante says um, to his patron, he says, I've written this to move my readers from a state of misery to a state of happiness. And I think that's a significant kind of uh, a significant key for understanding what's going on in the poem, that the narrative of the poem moving from a dark wood to the beatific vision is also what Dante is wanting to to kind of affect um, the effect that he's wanting to have on his readers to move us from our our misery, our brokenness, our own dark wood to our happiness, our our own vision of God. So I think there's a very kind of Lenten spirit to that, recognizing how we have been lost, going subterranean, going into going into hell to confront the the viciousness of our sins, of our vices, knowing ourselves as we actually are, to then move into a spirit of reconciliation where we are able to confess and have our our vices and our sins not just forgiven, but also touched by grace and healed and transformed. And then so that we can be made pure in heart, so that we can so we can behold God. I think maybe a verse that underpins what Dante's doing here is from the Beatitudes. Um, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. The whole journey for Dante is a dark wood. His Italian is the, the selva oscura, the, the obscuring wood, wood that prevents you from seeing. And where he ends up is the beatific vision. So it's a really, it's really a journey of learning how to, how to see, how to see God. And he maps that onto the journey of becoming pure in heart so that he can see God. All of that seems very Lenten um, to me. But for Ash Wednesday in particular, there are a couple of, of key things. I'll, I'll just mention one. The poem opens um, with with Dante the Pilgrim being lost in this dark wood. He's trying to make his way out of it, but he keeps getting turned back by these beasts that block his path. And so he plunges back into this dark wood and he's he's broken. He is on on the verge of despair. 
and he sees a shadowy figure coming to him in this dark wood. And this is Virgil, who's going to be Dante's guide. And Dante the pilgrim cries out. It's the first spoken word of the pilgrim. He cries out to Virgil. He says, miserere mei, have mercy on me. Which, of course, Dante is taking from from David's great penitential psalm, have mercy on me. Um, which is, you know, the, the, the psalm that we, we sing or we chant or we pray on Ash Wednesday. It's right, maybe right. the key prayer of Ash Wednesday and of the Lenten series and uh, the Lenten season, excuse me. And that's how the, the pilgrim begins. The whole beginning is the prayer for mercy. And, and I think that's a very Ash Wednesday kind of theology at work. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with that. Not having read much, I think um, I, I read that the opening part, but um, with that in there um, before before the ep- before we decided to record this episode. But um, to me, I guess it coming from a place that I, I'm, I'm not quite sure fully your background, but I'm coming from a place in um, a world in the Christian tradition that didn't celebrate Lent. Um, for the longest time, I had, I had friends who were Catholics celebrate Lent. I just thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was just this legalistic kind of, you know, beat yourself to death, beat yourself up, and um, treat you know you got to make sure you're you're this feeling like this pitiful sinner. And of course, though, I, I believed in this literal eternal fire, torturous. God was going to you know torture all these people in in hell no matter what you know for the smallest of sins, and um, and so it coming to this. Lent and to Dante and to his portrayals of, of hell and the inferno and this journey through. And um, it was interesting for me because th- those are not views I, I hold anymore by any means. But um, I think the only time that I've seen any kind of real reference to, to Dante's work has been specifically on the inferno and it's been some kind of distorted use of it in pop culture or yeah things like that. But one thing, I can't remember the, the name of the lecture. Um, in one of the videos you sent me of one of the lectures, they talked about, you know, uh, the divine comedy is this journey into self-knowing and, and thus into knowing God. Yes. And I thought that was beautiful. I thought that to me that that stuck out as, is very much Linton because I, to me, when I think of Lynn, I think about Jesus in the wilderness. I think it is him going into the wilderness. And I, to me, that seems like a time in his life of, um, coming to a place of self-knowing uh, and, and growing in wisdom and stature and, and being in the wilderness and knowing who he is and what he's to do and that he's going to have to ultimately make this journey alone when it, when it's all said and done and, um, and face the fact that he has the incarnation that he has wrapped himself in frailty and he'll, he'll have to face um, a type of mortality. And, and so I, I, Coming to that, I guess, was really interesting for me when I was reading um, through this stuff and listening to lectures, uh, listening to those lectures. But uh, the self-knowing thing, um, and that for me, that's what Lent has been. It's been a place um, of coming to a place where I can know God more intimately through knowing who I am and, and knowing my my frailty, my mortality, knowing that my life is fleeting and. Um, so it's been a journey the last few years of celebrate or I shouldn't say celebrating Lent, but observing Lent. Um, and so I, I found that theme really interesting in those lectures that you sent me. Yeah, I think the self knowledge is is an important but often neglected um, character to to this poem, especially when it comes to teaching this this poem. 
um, I often ask my students, how many of you have read Dante before? Uh, and, you know, out of 30 and maybe four or five will raise, raise their hand on good, good days. It'll be seven or eight. Right. Uh, and then I said, how many have, of you have read more than the Inferno? And across the board, all of the hands go down. Um, but what I always say then is, ah, so none of us have actually read Dante. We don't actually encounter, we don't have a good knowledge or good awareness of who Dante is and what Dante is up to if we just read the Inferno. We only really understand Inferno from the perspective of Paradiso. I think there's a, quite an astute theology there at, at work. Um, but one of the things that becomes apparent as you're, you're going back and you're rereading these texts, once you have the entire narrative kind of in, in mind, is you start to see um, how much Dante's, uh, the pilgrim's journey is Dante, the poet, the author, kind of putting himself through a kind of confessional and meditative and um, uh, 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 penitential journey of, of, of self-knowledge. So there's a, a key scene uh, that I always make a, a really big deal of. It's, it's, in per, it's in Purgatorio Canto 9, so the ninth kind of chapter of the second part, Purgatorio. And here Dante the Pilgrim is in front of uh, an angel at the gate to Purgatory. Uh, this is where he's going to go and he's going to be uh, have his vices kind of healed and purged and corrected. And before he can cross through the gate, he has to kind of kneel before this angel. He has to smote himself on the chest three times, the mea culpa. Um, but Dante the pilgrim draws our attention to the fact that this angel is sitting on top of three differently colored stairs. And uh, he describes each of these stairs the first stair is made of clear white marble. And Dante says it's polished so well um, that, that he can see his own image reflected back. But he's, the, the, the poet is really intentional here. He said, I saw reflected my true image, my true likeness. Wow. The next stair is, is black and it's kind of smote and there's a kind of cruciform shape in it. And then the final stair is, is red, like blood that spurts from a wound. And I mean, that's kind of maps onto the, the different parts of, of the sacrament of confession and reconciliation. But what always strikes me is that idea of Dante, in order to make this journey, he has to see himself as he really is. And right. what a what a wonderful and terrible um, invitation that is, that he sees himself reflected as he truly is, stripped of all pretense, stripped of all of the, the kind of false projections of self that we that he, like all of us, kind of put out there in the world, um, that all of the masks have to come come off. And he has to see himself for who he really is. Right. And I don't know if this is, is necessarily what uh, a lot of more advanced Dante scholars would say, but I tend to think that that's what the Inferno is doing. That the Inferno is, in a real sense, Dante's staring into 
um, this reflection and seeing himself as he really is. Because some of the key the the key uh, encounters in the Inferno, some of the most famous ones that have been depicted in song and in art, um, the subject is ultimately Dante himself, Dante as an author, Dante as a as a, a poet, Dante as a user of language, and it often is Dante kind of owning up to, oh, you know what, the erotic poetry that I wrote in my past, that's, that's culpable. That's, that's dangerous. I have to own up to the fact that my poetry can be deceptive, that it can lead people astray. Um, he has to own up to his own pride and his poetic genius and recognize the sterility of writing art for one's own glory. He has to encounter, he encounters somebody who exposes, um, the, the dangers of pride and ambition um, as, it, as it quenches humility. And so I think the subject of the Inferno is Dante himself. And by subjecting himself to that kind of self-interrogation, I think he models something for us that we need to look into this mirror. We can use the Inferno or we can use the other parts of the comedy um, as mirrors that reflect us back to ourselves, um, that we read the book, or we read the poem, and yet we find the poem reading us. We interrogate it and find it interrogating us in return. I think that's part of the genius of of this poem, but not just genius. But I think it's it's a real kind of, uh, kind of if I can use this language, a kind of charism of of the poem, right? To to be able to do that. Right. I, I really like that idea of reading, reading the, the text and then reading you back. And um, early, I guess earlier, mid last year, I had uh, Professor Chris Green on the show and that's he was we were dealing with scripture primarily. But in that context of having scripture read us and teach us how to read the world. Yeah. Um, and so like some of the things you're bringing out the, uh, as far as like Dante's, you know, the self-reflective side is interesting because um, it just recently it was, it was strange. I had, I had, I can't remember where I stumbled upon, but somebody was, you know, arguing, they were, they were just talking about, um, you know, kind of that Dante putting himself in this story is so much of his life was the, the prideful sense of it. So that they were looking at it as kind of an inflated ego, I think uh, of Dante putting himself in the story. I think specifically in regards to, I guess there, there are people or characters we encounter in the Inferno that are representative of people in his life that he didn't yeah. like maybe um, and things like that. So, you know, like to me, I think, you know, just on a shallow reading, it, it could seem like, you know, he's, he, he's taking some um, artistic um, – he's just using uh, a lot of, um, of things. I, I don't know, using, using it to kind of project negativity onto those people's lives. But, you know, the more I read the stuff you, you had sent me and um, uh, listened to the lectures, I just got to thinking about how, though I'm not very um, at all uh, familiar with the text, it, it just, it did seem like, um, especially in regards to that painting, which you were, you were talking about the painting earlier, is that, that the comedy was him dealing with his own sin, with his own brokenness, with his own um, jacked up issues, and in turn presenting this text that this this thing that was birthed in this exile to those people, to the people in Florence, and to the people in the world around him, and saying, "Hey, you're going to have to deal with this too." Yeah, There's something going on in us, and I've been there. I've seen it. I've had to face it, and it wasn't, you know, to me it 
reading this stuff and talking to you, it just kind of even more clarified for me, I guess, that, um, you know, Dante wasn't just writing this story to, to condemn all these different people so much as it was to say, you know, hey, this is, this is what we have to face. We have to go through this because this is what was in me. This is what I was struck. This yeah. is, you know, the depths of my brokenness and we yeah. all have to face that. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, Dante is often very unfairly reduced to being a kind of revenge fantasy. Right. Um, and it's easy to reduce him in the opposite direction and kind of turn him into this kind of pious, pious good old Catholic boy um, who was so unjustly um, abused by by his life uh, and by his fate. And of course, the what makes the divine comedy so fascinating and so frustrating is that it's so difficult to pin down. I mean, Dante is, I mean, he, let's just call a spade a spade. He is a really proud, maybe even arrogant guy. Right. Uh, but he knows it. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a, in a second, but I mean, his, his pride is on full display in, in this poem. I mean, he is completely, um, He's completely unashamed to condemn real people to hell. Uh, and, and he shows no hesitation. He is also quite content to, um, to transfer unexpected people to purgatory or to paradise. There's a, a great uh, scene in Purgatorio where Dante encounters uh, another classical poet named Statius. And we have absolutely no record of Statius ever being a, uh, a Christian, ever going through a conversion. And yet Dante decides, you know what, I'm going to rewrite Statius' <laughs> story, and I'm going to put him in purgatory. And that means he's on his way to heaven. Um, so Dante is treading, he's treading the line of uh, presumption. Uh, maybe he's not even treading it. He might just be like pole vaulting, pole vaulting <laughs> over the line um, into presumption. But there's a, a, a wonderful little scene um, just after Dante crosses into purgatory and he has to address the first of the seven deadly sins. And that's pride. Pride is the foundation, the foundational vice. And he encounters the proud and the proud uh, are having to walk up this mountain with a huge boulder pressed on their backs and it pushes them down, right? Just as their pride kind of made them lord over people, now they're, they're being taught humility where they're having to stoop low to kind of bring their eyes down to, to the dirt, to the ground, um, which is, you know, etymologically where we get the word human and humility from, from right. the ground. And Dante uh, wants to talk to one of these guys who was an illuminator of biblical text. So he's an artist. And so here's a guy, a poet who's writing this kind of spiritual journey, talking to an artist whose whole job was to make art in and through the biblical text. And so Dante has to bow down low in order to talk to this guy. And so he has to kind of ape humility. But what's fascinating is when he's finally ready to move on to leave the proud behind, Dante stands up straight, but he says, but my, my thoughts remained bent low. So he is, in a sense, kind of 
confessing to us, this is a case that um, one of my favorite Dante scholars, a guy named Vittorio Montemaggi, he makes this case. He's saying Dante is owning up to the fact that he is proud. He knows it. He even says later on, he says, look, I'm not going to be he when I come back and I do purgatory for real. I'm not going to spend much time on on the terrace of the envious. I'm not a very envious person, but I'm going to be stuck with the proud for a very long time. Right. He knows it. He acknowledges it. And so what Vittorio says is perhaps Dante is inviting us to pray for him as he is trying to learn to overcome his pride in and through writing the poem. Um, and so what he's dramatizing is his own, the own, his own kind of clash that we all face between our, our pride and our desire to become humble, right? Which is, again, I think a really good kind of Lenten meditation. Let me own who I am. I am a proud SOB. Um, (laughs) But let me me also acknowledge this is not who I am called to be nor who who I want to be. Right. And and let me dedicate myself to the long, slow, patient work of becoming humble or becoming, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah, you know, I I think something um, that I I got from just the text and things we were um, was just how you know I guess for me the um, the the way I guess Dante's work's been it's been so otherworldly, but there there seemed to be and just especially reading about his life and um, certain selections of the work was just how humanizing the comedy actually is. Yes. Whether, whether it be Dante or, or someone else, it's there's this humanizing aspect to what's going on. He's he's transversing these these other worlds through hell and purgatory and, and paradise. And it's but it's so humanizing. I thought that's that was something I, I just thought of that. There's just there's this aspect to it that Dante is getting to the heart of what it means to be human for him. And um, yes. And for us, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think I think so. And I think one of the most humanizing aspects of the poem is that um, other than Dante and his guide Virgil, the other main character in, in the poem is a woman named Beatrice, who is is kind of the object of Dante's poetic uh, poetic love, poetic affection. She's kind of a muse figure. She's the object of his his um, erotic poetry, though they they were never lovers. And Beatrice becomes Dante's guide. Like once Dante has gone through Inferno and Purgatory, she's the guide um, uh, into paradise. And she leads him up into uh, the Empyrean, into the final heaven. And I think that's really significant because Virgil, I mean, who wouldn't want to be guided by Virgil, a right. great uh, a philosopher, a great poet, a great historian. I mean, the great man. But the great man can only take Dante so far. What has, to, what has to come to him is just this, you know, Florentine woman of, of you know, a decent, decent family stock but of no real note to history, if it weren't for Dante, we probably wouldn't know a single thing about her. We barely know anything about her as it is outside of the poem. And yet it's Beatrice. Beatrice becomes the, the, the way that, um, that Christ comes to Dante. 
Dante's pretty bold in what he says about Beatrice when she first shows up on 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 the scene. Uh, she shows up in a, a a very Christological way, and in a sense, I think Dante is investing Beatrice not just with all of the kind of poetic and and erotic dimensions that he's inherited from the poetic traditions of his day. But he's also investing her with a theological significance that this one ordinary woman is the way that Christ and God's grace has been manifested uh, to him. There's a line in um, Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, and I've stolen this from um, from a, a fellow named Mal- Malcolm Gite, where Shakespeare says, um, or has one of his characters say, that the the poet, the imagination, bodies forth invisible things. And in a sense, that's what Beatrice is. And in a sense, that's what everybody who who is a Christian, a little Christ, is. We are the bodying forth of the the invisible presence of of Christ, of God. Right. This is what the Eucharist is. This is and in in a sense the Christian life, it participates in that. Um, we are the, the bodying forth of, of Christ's presence in and for the world. And I've started to read the Divine Comedy as Dante's journey to become a Christian, a, a little Christ, and that then the poem is Dante's way of bodying forth Christ's own love and charity and grace for for his readers. Right. I I thought it was really interesting um in some of the stuff we you sent me how, you know, there was all the early on there were all these I guess commentaries already and I guess people already started arguing over what Dante was really getting at uh from his sons to all these different people. Um and and something I guess that just stuck out to me was just that you know it, the, this idea, I guess, was, you know, you know, to, to build off that, that, you know, we are these um, the humanizing forms of, of God. We're, we're, we're being Christian means to bring God into the world in a sense and like the Eucharist and, and things like that. I just, I think about it, um, I guess, back to the theme of exile, you know, someone goes into exile, the prophet goes into exile, but their words come out of exile for those yeah. people. Yeah. So, you know, Dante goes into exile, but his words, this comedy comes out for the people in Florence, despite yes. all that they've done to him, despite being exiling him, whether, you know, unjustly or whatever, and, and making him live uh, apart from them and away from his home, losing his status in society, his money and his power and, and all of these things. His word, even if sometimes, you know, um, we see for certain people is kind of harsh, <laughs> it is, um, it's for them. And it's it's like you said, it's him embodying that that Christ to Florence and to the rest of the world in, in his day. And so I, I, I really like that. I really like and for me that's Lent is we're we're going into the wilderness with Jesus so we can prepare to embody Christ to the world. We can right. bear our crosses. You know, we're we're going into this wilderness to be able to bear our crosses and we're going into exile to be able to bear um Christ into the world. Um and and so I really like that whole theme that kind of run, runs in that. 
Yeah. And I mean, sometimes this means going into prophetic mode. I mean, Christ is also the one who overturned tables, right? right. It's not just Jesus meek and meek and mild. And Dante speaks in the prophetic mode quite a bit. Um, he has a lot of harsh words to say to Florence, and he has a lot of harsh words to say to the church. In fact, perhaps even harsher words to, to say to the church. Um, and 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 yet the entire spirit of the comedy, at least as as I've encountered it, is this comic style. Not meaning it's it's a laugh fest the whole time. It's not particularly, but this idea that it begins with our characters and perhaps even ourselves as readers at the, our lowest point, and it leaves us at the end with us in our highest point: the triumph of life over death, of love over hate, of community over isolation. And it seems like the journey of of Lent is taking us from that point of brokenness into, I mean, even the great darkness of, of great of good Friday and Holy Saturday. And finally into that triumph of life over, over death. And I mean, it's a truly comic movement, I think from that we take through, through Lent, it doesn't make the darkness any less dark, but it does deposit us where we have this, this comic joy that breaks in at the end that kind of transfigures the, the entire, the 40 days prior. Right. You know, I think it's to me is that because I, I think Lent is a time for us to sit with that, that darkness, you know, it's a time for us yeah. to, to sit with that and sit with all that brokenness, but we still, we know Easter's coming. Right. <laughs> no matter how hard Lent is or no how dark life gets or, or how long we spend in the inferno, we know that, Easter's coming. And we know that despite the fact that on Ash Wednesday, we are remembering that we're going to die and we're facing that fact. We know that in the end, dawn approaches, that there is this, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, or that, that things will be made right. The things that don't feel right, that we're at our lowest, we, we will be raised to life. Um, and, but I, I think we have to travel into Lent to do that. We, we can't get to Easter without Golgotha. Yes, we can't. Right. And that that's the the paradox of it. There's a there's a raising to life, but you can't get there unless you die. You know, yes. that's what Jesus says that if a grain of wheat doesn't fall to the earth, it'll it will remain alone. Nothing that doesn't die can be resurrected. And so to see that, to experience that resurrection, to to see that, to come to that place of Easter, we we have to be able to go up Golgotha and and die and yeah. go into that. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's uh, actually fits really nicely with one of the other things that Dante's doing in the poem. So the inferno opens on on Monday Thursday, where he is lost in the dark wood, and so it is a, a, a the kind of the ending of Lent and the beginning of of the the great three days leading up to Easter. And Dante actually begins his descent into hell on Good Friday. And right. throughout his journey, he's noticing there's all of these geographic and topological um, uh, markers in, in hell. There's a landslide that, was, that, that happened uh, when Christ descended into hell. So he's actually literally following the footsteps of Christ at first. And hell is marked by Christ's presence. And Dante emerges from hell on the other side of, of the earth on Easter morning. And he says, 
as he turns to write Purgatorio, he says, rise now to life, dead poetry. So his poetry is undergoing a resurrection as well. Right. Um, what, awesome. I, what I find uh, just a, a little nugget just to kind of get at the, the theological um, the theological subtlety that Dante is working with here on Monday, Thursday, the pilgrim looks up and the, and the moon is full. And then as he goes, goes in uh, before he goes underground into hell, he, he notices the next day that the, that um, the, the moon isn't quite as full. And you think, well, that's a, a kind of silly little detail. Why include that? Well, there's a delightful book uh, by um, a woman named Alison Cornish called uh, Reading Dante's Stars. And it's more than you could ever uh, expect from a, a book about what Dante is doing with constellations in this poem. But she, she draws our attention to Augustine. And Augustine said that the reason why the church doesn't celebrate Easter when the moon is full, but when it is waning is because when the moon is waning, it is actually drawing closer to the sun. That's cool. That when the moon is at its fullest, it's at, that it's furthest from the sun. Right. And that's where Dante begins. But the effect of the, of the moon drawing closer to the sun, like the soul drawing closer to God, the first thing that happens is we have a darker night on earth. Right. Um, and, and that seems very much a, a, the spirit of, of Lent. It, it's as we're drawing closer to God, as we're drawing closer to Easter, the, the immediate effect is we're kind of plunged into, into darkness in a way. Right. That's good. I, I like that. Thank you for pull, pulling that out. Um, so Dante, you know, he, we, you travel with him through the comedy, um, and it's, it's this journey. And I, I'm, I'm excited cause I, I haven't actually read the, the full work of the, you know, the divine comedy. I haven't, you know, I've read there's sections I I've read before, um, and things like that, but, I'm excited to actually read it and I'm, I'm, I'm planning on just going to read it, reading it through Lent and um, as kind of a way to um, journey with Dante, I guess uh, through this next 40 days or so before Easter. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. But um, something that I guess struck me was that just this, this idea of exile and pilgrimage within the text and, and Lent and um, it, it seems like, I don't, I don't know, Dante, just from the, what, I, what I've read is that he, you know, he, he, he wasn't particularly happy about this exile, but did, do you think in your opinion, I guess through the work, did, do you ever come to a place of accepting it as, I guess, what out of the, the, the comedy, you know, like you talked about the comedy giving back out of that, but do you think maybe that Dante ever came to a place of looking around at his exile as hard as it was and realizing that, this was the cross he was to bear so he could birth Christ into the world and through the comedy or, or through um, his other works. You know, I, I don't really, I don't really know. We know that uh, some of the people that he was exiled with did return to Florence, um, but Dante, Dante did not. Um, now that could very easily be a, a sign of Dante's pride that he right. was unwilling to go back to Florence and, 
and face the the public humiliation that his his political enemies wanted to subject him to in order to be reconciled with the city. So it could be um, a sign of of um, the kind of the the pride the the vice of pride that he's so transparent about in the comedy. Um, but I I I think even at the end of the Divine Comedy. Dante is being examined on um, the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And when he starts talking about hope, he begins by talking about his hope that some, something in Florence will change, that the hearts of Florence will change, and that he will be welcomed back into the city, and he will be celebrated as, as a poet in Florence and that he will receive the, the laurel crown of, of the poet. And I think that's a really melancholy, um, a, a really sad line there that even towards the end of this journey, he's still looking to Florence, hoping that there will be some kind of reconciliation. Uh, right. So I think there's, I think there's a deep sadness there. I think he never got over the fact of being exiled or I don't think there's anything in the text that would suggest, oh yeah, he's fine with this now. Um, but but I I do think that that Dante understands that something good has come out of this. So there's a, a scene where he meets his great grand grandfather, a guy named Cacciaguida, who tells Dante that he's gonna be exiled. He tells him forthrightly, you're going to be exiled. And then he says, and this is why you've been brought on this journey, so that you can see things and that you can put them into words. And this is what his ancestor says, what Cachaguita says. He says, forswear all falsehood, revealing all that you have seen, and then let him who itches scratch. You could think that's directed towards Florence, perhaps. Right. If your voice is bitter at first taste, it will later furnish vital nourishment once it has been swallowed and digested. And that's he's kind of playing off the the, the image of the of the scroll that uh, the prophet eats and it turns bitter, right? right? But he's saying like these words are going to be bitter at first, but if the people will let them, they can provide life giving nourishment, right to to the body to to the soul. And it's it's a handful of cantos after that that Dante expresses his hope that one day he'll be reconciled to Florence. So and I think in, in a sense, there's a, a sadness that he's writing this for Florence in hope that he will be reconciled. But I don't think any I don't think he has any optimism right. that, he will, that he'll be reconciled. And that's an important distinction, I think, for him uh, uh, to use a, a phrase from Terry Eagleton. It's a hope without optimism. Right. Well, you know, I think that 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 dynamic is important for Lent because Easter is not about optimism. It's about hope. Yes. Um, right. Because optimism, optimism won't work on the cross. Optimism won't won't work um, in the face of crucifixion and death. Hope, right. hope, can, hope can operate in that situation, but optimism can't. Right. Um, and sometimes right. it's like, I, I don't know, that's what, you know, to me is that a lot of people or I shouldn't say a lot of people that, but there's in you know, this idea, you know, that 
I don't know, even just religion in general is this escapist idea from death. Yes. It's this, right. the, it's this way to be able to deal with death and get out of it because, you know, we're going to be resurrected or we're going to enter into some kind of afterlife or whatever. But to me that that's like an optimistic view that that's not what hope gives us. Right. Hope, hope right. has nothing. Um, I think it was, um, Flannery O'Connor, uh, she said, you know, people want religion to be an electric, electric blanket, but it's a cross. Yes. And, you know, we, we want it. And it's not that, you know, Easter is not something that is that we can't look forward to and that it's it should be comforting to us. But it still doesn't do anything to change the present reality of suffering and our mortality in this moment Um, and all the things that come with Lent and and bearing our crosses into the world. So um, to me, you know, I can have hope for resurrection, but that doesn't mean that life's not is not going to be hard, that that. What's going on right now is not going to be tough. The cross I have to bear is going to be some just feather-like thing because, oh, I'll just be, you know, resurrection comes. Um, that's good. But sometimes it doesn't come fast enough, I think. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, 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 wrote a, I wrote a post several years ago, I guess, when I, I, I first started my, my exilic journey, I guess, when I stepped foot out of the, the church I was been a part of for this is really the only real home that I had really known. Um, and it was just time and I stepped out of it and there was a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of things that were said. And I just remember thinking, God, this hurts. This, this is tough. You know, there's nothing about this is pleasant. And, um, I realized, you know, it was in that moment, I guess I really realized that this faith has nothing to do with being comfortable, so to speak. And it, it, all that assurance of comfort is just, it's, it's not, it's not even what it's about. And I'm not think I'm not saying we can't be comforted by the Holy spirit because of course the Holy spirit is our, is our comforter, but it's this descent into those things that yeah. we have to, we're going to go through those things. It's not that those things won't, they don't, they don't have the death doesn't have the final say, but that doesn't mean that resurrection just doesn't. Sometimes it just feels like it takes too damn long. Yes, and, absolutely. And that's, it doesn't, you know, Easter comes, but it doesn't necessarily make it any easier to bear. And so hope operates. It Hope gets us through, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily take the pain away. Right. Yeah. Death might, might not have the final say, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a say. <laughs> right. 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 And, and so like, I guess just in my, in my mind, I, I kind of resonate with Dante in some sense. Of course, I've not actually been physically exiled from somewhere, but I feel like that theme of exile has been something that has marked my faith um, for a long time, even even before, I guess, I, I left the church that I was in. Um, but definitely after that is that that theme kind of helped it guide me and and make me realize that this I have so much further to go and that it is as much as I long for my Florence and as much as I for the years I've I've longed to be reconciled it it may never happen and so far it has not happened right and and right. so I can I really resonated with that when I was reading through this stuff and, and listening to those lectures so um, yeah that I think that's the thing that really captivated me the most yeah, I'm fascinated with the way that that Dante can uh, depict his exile being redeemed. I.e., he wrote this right. this poem that, whether you're religious or not, I mean, is a beautiful work of art that's dazzling to encounter. Um, that he can redeem the exile without ever saying, "Therefore, the exile was okay." Right. 
that he he doesn't soften the the blow. He says redemption doesn't go back and say, "Oh, this bad thing wasn't actually bad." Right. He he forces us, and I think this is a very Christian thing. He forces us to see the tragedies in in our life and in our experience with a kind of binocular vision. Right. You you see the the tragedy and the redemption of the tragedy. You you have to see Good Friday and Easter, that both of these are are realities for us as Christians. We're marked by both of them. Easter might be the fullest reality, but that doesn't mean that it it makes Good Friday not not a horror, not a scandal, not right. a, a heartbreaking, not a, a dark day. And and I like that Dante provides us a, a different way into a, a very Christian way of seeing, I think. Right. I, and so I, like I said, I'm, I'm excited to read through the comedy and um, his life. Uh, but for our listeners, where would you say um, someone who's unfamiliar with Dante or just maybe like my level should start? Because um, maybe jumping into the comedy is not the best idea for somebody. Um, so in your opinion, where, where should someone start if they're wanting to um, learn more about Dante and his work and to... Uh, I guess engage with him and and read his read the text and be read by the text. Yeah, I I actually think that out of all of Dante's works, the comedy is absolutely the place to to start. Dante doesn't have a whole lot of other stuff to books to his name, but the ones that he that he does have to his name are not nearly as um, as approachable as the comedy is. So I think the the best thing to do is get a good translation of the comedy. There are approximately a billion out there. <laughs> um, so some some recommendations. I think uh, Robin Kirkpatrick has a really good translation. Um, Tony Esselin also has a good translation. Uh, if you want a uh, a living, breathing. Um, uh, a summary of all of the Dante scholarship out there in the world. Robert and Gene Hollander have uh, really good translations. So get a good translation and, um, but follow Dante's own advice that he models. Dante has guides and Dante does, does not believe that we come to God on our own, that, um, that it's through our encounter with with others, um, to use some of Vittorio Montemaggi's language again, through our encounter with others, that we are led to to truth to God. So find some good good people to to read with. Um, Giuseppe uh, Mazzotta has a wonderful uh, canto by canto guide through the entire Divine Comedy. It's in a book called Reading Dante, but. All of those are uh, all of those chapters are uh, based on lectures that he gives to his students at Yale that you can access on YouTube for free. Um, uh, Peter Hawkins has a wonderful and, and short little book called uh, uh, Dante: A Brief History, which I think is is a good companion. And if you're interested in kind of exploring some of the the Christian spirituality of Dante, there's a book that just came out. Uh, last year from Cascade called uh, uh, Dante Mercy and the Beauty of the Human Person, 
which is a, a group of essays from the University of Notre Dame, where they read Dante through Lent a couple of years ago. And those videos are also videos of those lectures are also available for free on YouTube. So there are a host of of uh, people out there who are exploring this this poem in a variety of ways. And uh, I mean, I'm only a couple of years into my own Dantean journey, and I found the community to be very warm and very welcoming and, uh, and very passionate about evangelizing um, <laughs> with, with this text, drawing more people to Dante. And if you find, if you find um, a, a good group of, of Christian readers using Dante as a sign that is pointing us to and, and directing us to our, our final end in the life of God. That's awesome. That's I, awesome. I love that I love whole that idea, whole idea, idea of, of meeting guides. Yes. That's something That's I, something I something resonate with. Resonate on. Which on. is actually the whole, per, the whole purpose, purpose behind this podcast, this podcast is learning from these people that have went before us. These people yes. who are have walked the wild paths, as I like to call it, before. They've, they've tread through the wilderness already, and um, their lives are signposts. You know, their their path rights, they're gonna lead us back through these paths to a deeper and more robust faith. And so I I resonate with that idea. I'm I'm shocked, I guess, in my own just in my that I haven't somehow landed on Dante earlier, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um yeah. I, I really am because like the more the more I read, the more I'm just re- I resonate over and over and over with either his life or just the ideas that he's bringing out and um, so I'm very thankful that, uh, you know, I tweeted that day and you reached out to me about, you know, doing an interview about Dante. Uh, I thought that was just, uh, in hindsight, I like, it's just so great. So I'm, I've already got so much out of it and I can't wait to, uh, read the rest of that book from Hawkins and, um, jump into the divine comedy. I'm going to, uh, do my best to get all of your recommendations that you just put in the show notes for those who are listening. You'll be able to just click a link and go to Amazon or wherever and be able to find those things and, Make sure I link all the videos and stuff like that. So thank you for all those recommendations, Matthew. Um, My pleasure. And thank you so much for just uh, having this conversation with us today, man. Taking time out of your your busy life as a professor and grading papers and lecturing and uh, dealing with punk college kids. And uh, to come on the show and talk to us about Dante. Because, again, that's someone I've not, it's not even been on my radar in my own life, much less for the show. And I'm regretful of that so far <laughs> in hindsight. So... Uh, just thank you, man. I, I really do appreciate you just taking the time out of your day to come and have this conversation with me. Hey, it has been it's been my pleasure, and I, I love sharing the the joy and the frustration of Dante. He's a great person to think and think with and uh, think against too. He he makes you a better person, I think, if you let him. I def I definitely think I'm going to be challenged. Um, the more I, the more I read, I, I, I'm definitely going to be challenged. So I am looking forward to that. So everyone, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the show. This is the Ash Wednesday episode, if you haven't caught on yet, which is exactly one year in church calendar time, at least, um, since I relaunched the show under Exile Liturgy. And so it seems very appropriate that we're talking about an, an actual exile today. Um, and so this is one year, and it's been a wild one year. I've been uh, just so blessed to have so many guests on the show, just and just cover so many different topics over the last year. And so it's been great. And I hope you've enjoyed this last year. Um, 
have a couple things coming up um, for Lent and or for specifically for Holy Week this year. Uh, but the episode series on Lent for the rest of the Lenten season, I'm just stoked for. And so this could not have been a better way to kickstart the material that I have worked up for the rest of these next 40 days or so. And so, again, just so thankful for Matthew coming on the show. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to uh, subscribe to our um, our monthly signpost is what we call it. It's a newsletter slash devotional. You get all the updates. You get um, all of our digital releases essentially for free. Anything I write, devotionals or anything like that, right in your inbox. Um, no spam ever. And so just be sure to sign up for that. Um, share. That's the best thing you can do for the show is share. Be sure to go follow Matthew on Twitter. You'll be able to find um, his handle in the show notes as well. Go uh, tell him hello and uh, what you thought about the episode and, and things like that. So again, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And until next time.